Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. You can listen to all our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Enjoy. This week, the Institute of Economic Affairs released its latest paper, Changing the Rules, a Unilateral Approach to Non-Tariff Barriers, authored by our Head of Regulatory Affairs, Victoria Hewson. The paper offers a bold proposal for UK trade policy, suggesting that the UK unilaterally recognise a territory's regulatory regime, allowing goods to be traded into the UK market without regulatory barriers, so long as their standards offer equivalent levels of safety. Victoria suggests that the UK should start by recognising EU rules, even if the EU still declines to reciprocate the gesture. And we'll get into the details of that later on. But for now, I'm delighted to be joined by the author herself, Victoria, who's going to discuss the paper with me today. Welcome, Victoria. Um, Victoria, could you give our listeners a brief summary of the paper uh, and, and tell us what you wish to achieve with the paper? Yes, thanks, Kieran. So the, the general idea behind the paper is that we should be minimising regulatory barriers to trade. And to do so, we shouldn't be tying ourselves to pursuing trade agreements and mutual recognition agreements with other countries. We should be getting on the front foot and just going ahead and unilaterally taking steps to reduce regulatory barriers to the import. In this case, the focus is particularly on goods. And in the very first instance, the obvious territory whose regulations and certification we should be recognising is, uh, is is the EU. We should be taking an open, liberal, unilateral approach to minimising regulatory barriers to trade by recognising the regulations of other territories whose regulations and standards uh, that we think are, are, are perfectly good and that our consumers would be happy to buy. Um, I think most people, you know, know that tariffs on goods impose costs on consumers. On consumers, um, but what are non-tariff barriers to trade? Non-tariff barriers to trade is basically anything that poses um, a friction or a distortion or an additional cost on trading in in goods between two countries that doesn't constitute a specific tariff or a, an actual tax on the on the um, on the import of the good and the classic examples of non-tariff barriers regulatory barriers is things like um, labeling requirements or um, particular requirements for the ingredients of goods or the the composition and specification of goods which when they're different between two countries for essentially equivalent goods means that either your supply line, you have to run two different supply lines um, to produce what's really in most other sort of senses of the substance of the goods are going to be pretty much the same, but they perhaps have to have some particular technical difference to satisfy the two particular markets. That obviously has significant costs across supply chains and in some instances it can actually be impossible for one producer to meet both uh, territories sets of regulations so that can add a significant cost to doing business across borders it can reduce the availability of goods to consumers and therefore 
uh, reduce competition in the home market. And frankly, these non-tariff barriers, non-tariff measures are much harder to deal with than tariffs. Tariffs have really been going down or had perhaps until the last year or so when there's been a bit of creeping protectionism. But broadly speaking, over the past decades since the WTO agreements and the, and the GATT before that, tariffs have been trending downwards quite significantly. Uh, and that's in a way that's quite a e relatively easy thing to do because with the stroke of a pen, you can simply do away with your external tariffs on, on, a, on particular goods. Regulatory barriers are much more pernicious and much harder for a country to um, to eliminate or, or mitigate and also much harder for um, an exporter and an importer to to work around because mm. you can't just pay the tariff and yeah. get on with it right there's there's a lot of upstream implications from regulatory um, yeah you make a good point um, on, on the tariff front I think today um, the US have just reversed the Trump tariffs on Japanese steel um, and I think that that's been reciprocated in, in Europe as well. Um, just to give, maybe put some figures on this, how, how costly are non-tariff barriers? So this is, this is quite difficult to work out because obviously there isn't a, a, a transparent cost attached to it. Tariffs, the, the immediate static cost at least, is quite obvious because there will be a tariff of say 10% on the import of, of cars and, and, and motor vehicles. Um, clearly, there are lots of um, dynamic costs that stem from that, which are um, possible to model and quantify. But with, with non-tariff barriers, with regulatory barriers, you can only really work it out through um, more sophisticated um, sort of models that will work out the comparative costs between domestically produced goods versus in similar equivalent imported goods and then try and work out how much of that cost difference is due to um, the the dual regulatory requirements and the the supply chain difficulties associated with with meeting them and there's obviously as you would expect a wide range of, of costs across different kinds of goods and so various work has been done in in the paper that's coming out um, that I've, that I've written, I cite some work by Swati Dingra and colleagues um, at the LSE where they tried to work this out in the context of the UK leaving the EU. They were trying to work out what the impact on um, trade of leaving the single market would be because all of those non-tariff barriers would spring up between the UK and the EU. So they, they crunched the numbers on that. And in some sectors, they found that the, 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 the cost of the non-tariff measures is equivalent to putting a 20% tariff on the goods in question. And I think that particular sector of goods was, um, as you might expect, food and agriculture, mm. which are some of the most heavily regulated and perhaps also the most protected um, and arbitrarily regulated in, in many ways. So we are talking some quite serious implications when you consider the efforts that have gone into eliminating and reducing tariffs where a 20% tariff now is considered to be rather unusually high in for, for many goods, that kind of impact is still rather widespread in in the in the non-tariff effects of regulations. Mm, and, and the paper is ma uh, making people aware of that. Um, and just to 
go to the EU as, uh, as, as an example. Um, from 2023, all EU goods destined for the UK market will now need to be certified with a new regulatory customs mark. Um, and it's recognising the regulatory independence of the UK from the EU. Could you explain how we got here? Because some people were thinking, well, we've, we align on, on standards and have done for so many decades now. Why is it we have to you know, impose these very regulatory barriers that you're talking about? Yeah, so this is, this is why we are publishing this paper now, because we can foresee in a year's time, the UK is in danger of, of walking into some rather unnecessary um, regulatory barriers here. So what happened? Obviously the UK, we left the single market Clearly, we are no longer um, going to benefit from the the free movement and sort of automatic recognition or at least acceptance of, of goods from the different member states that prevails within the single market. And what that means is that um, all of the things being equal, if a British exporter wants to send goods to the EU, they will have to meet the same border requirements as an exporter from China or Morocco or wherever it is. And that means you have to demonstrate that your goods meet EU rules. And in order to do that, for most goods, you can self-certify that. You simply check the goods, test the goods and say, yes, this um, smartphone, say, mm. meets the EU regulations and standards for smartphones and therefore affix the CE mark on it which means you are certifying that your goods um, meet the EU's requirements. Some goods, more, um, more technical, specialised goods, like say motor vehicles, for example, have to be certified by, tested and certified by an independent body, which, as you can imagine, entails a whole lot more cost and, and complexity. And so the EU just said, well, you're not a member of the single market anymore. We don't recognise UK regulations, even though they're the same as they ever were uh, on, on the day before Brexit, we're not going to recognise them anymore. And we're not even going to recognise your British independent certification bodies anymore. Either you'll have to have them certified by um, an EU based certification provider, which actually puts the UK in a worse position than lots of other non-EU countries like even the United States. Um, even China actually has more uh, recognition than the UK does of things like conformity assessment, mm. where you don't have to get an EU based. You still have to comply with EU rules. You don't comply with Chinese rules and send it. You comply with EU rules, but you can get a Chinese testing specialist to test and certify it to EU rules. So, sorry, this is a very long winded explanation so far. Um, now, so far, the UK has not reciprocated with the same barriers. We have continued to recognise EU rules and the CE mark mm. for goods coming to this country. And that's purely because we didn't want to expose our importers and consumers to the immediate shock of suddenly having to do everything to a new domestic only British standard from day one. Mm. There's this sort of a transition period yeah. has been happening and um, unfortunately the current policy is that that's going to come to an end in 2023 we will no longer automatically recognize EU rules and EU certification if you want to sell goods in 
the Great British market, and I say that advisedly because, of course, as with everything Brexit related, it's different in Northern Ireland, you will have to mark the goods with the new UK conformity mark, which will be UKCA, and we will no longer recognise the CE mark on its own. So we are in it, we are in it basically going to put up these these trade barriers and add these costs. And the reason is is that um, domestic producers feel like they're being disadvantaged because EU producers can simply continue to meet the same rules they always were and continue to have access to the UK market. Mm-hmm. Whereas the reverse is not true. UK producers now ha- have have that additional yeah. disadvantage as they see it. And the, the reason why this generally prevails, actually, and the reason why countries and territories are generally quite reluctant to recognise other countries' regulations and conformity assessment and testing processes without getting something in return is the classic mercantilist trade negotiation mindset is that you don't want to give something up without getting something in return and so for domestic producers uk exporters they think it's unfair that britain is still allowing eu goods into this country um, and they don't want us to continue to to um, be open to eu goods they want us to hold that off in the hope that we can trade it in return for the EU recognising our rules and making it easier for them to export. And my case in this paper is that we shouldn't try and do this bargaining chip thing. That's just punishing our own consumers. If the EU wants to punish their consumers and their importers um, by putting up these arbitrary barriers, then ultimately that's up to them. Yeah. But just because the, the old trade adage, um, just because your neighbour puts rocks in their harbour doesn't mean to say you have to put rocks in your own harbour. Mm, I, I think you've addressed my next question as well, which is obviously ah. the, the, you know, it, the argument as well, surely it will, export, uh, sorry, it will harm our exporters if it's not reciprocated, but the, the angle of the paper is actually, well, no, there's damage on both sides. And in fact, by the UK unilaterally accepting these. The- yes, and ultimately our, our exporters won't be in any worse position. The EU is not showing any interest in recognising UK regulations so far. So why would we continue or why would we start to punish ourselves Mm. in the hope that the EU will start to play nicely? Um, The EU will come to its own uh, trade policy decisions as to how to treat goods from, from the UK market. How, how do you want this paper to influence UK trade policy um, outside of like the UK relationship? Is there a um, is this supposed to be a sort of a standard bearer now of where it comes to free trade agreements? If there is a diff- difficulty in agreeing on regulations and, 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 and alignment on certain things, that there is a willingness where it's acceptable that I think you wrote in your paper that only where there's a standard of goods that are acceptable, right? You're not saying import all sorts of things like, you know, toys made out, made out of old tools and nails or whatever. Right. <laughs> you're, not, you're not going there, but is this going to be a, a, a blueprint for future trade deals? I certainly hope so. And this should be the kind of thing that if the UK was genuinely committed to 
being a real leader in international trade, this is the kind of forward-looking, um, quite, or I guess you could say innovative step that we should be looking at. Now, for me, as a, as a free trade purist, I would say just pretty much actually recognise, well, not even recognise everything, allow everything in, broadly speaking, and allow freedom of contract and operation of the market to um, decide which goods um, consumers actually want. Um, however, I recognise that that kind of um, open market free-for-all, as, as it would be portrayed, is not a politically realistic um, outcome here. Mm. Probably, certainly not in my lifetime and probably not even in yours. Um, so what, what I'm suggesting here is that um, we essentially charge our regulators, give our regulators a free trade objective mm. of identifying around the world sectors and goods regulated by trade partner countries um, that they think objectively meet the same outcome expectations of our British regulations and then let's just recognise them. Mm. I think a lot of people, people listening will be surprised that that doesn't happen already. Um, it just makes so much sense to, to just recognise it rather than have all these labels and costs added on when they're essentially the same objectives and outcomes of... Well, there's, there's various reasons for that. I mean, there's this, this sort of mercantilist um, bargaining chip reason. And then there are reasons to do with sort of regulatory autonomy. Regulators don't want to think that their um, patch is being infringed upon by foreign regulators mm. because I suppose you could imagine that if we opened our market to say um, US regulated medical devices let's say yeah. um, that market is so huge that very quickly there wouldn't be much British regulated medical devices on the market mm. and so they would worry that that would therefore make them pointless um, and I guess we free traders would say well fine so be it but the, the, the other great thing about this idea, I would say, is that it also opens up the idea of competition between regulators. And um, you would end up having British regulators trying to work out how they could improve our regulatory environment to make um, the British equivalent goods more innovative mm. and better quality so that consumers and buyers would actively seek out British regulated, British standard goods. Mm. I, I wonder now if you could discuss what well, we've mentioned that, that the Northern Ireland issue is. The Northern Ireland protocol is still a thorn in the side of UK EU, EU relations and there's trade friction between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and you made that distinction earlier. Um, how do you think proposals such as the one in your paper could provide a basis for a solution, not just in Northern Ireland, but in other areas where there is trade frictions? So this, um, this idea of unilateral openness to EU goods is, it's, it's certainly not going to be a complete solution to the, to the Northern Irish question, but it could certainly form part of it. So at the moment, Northern Ireland remains in the single market for goods. Therefore, they are obliged to maintain EU regulations for goods, which in turn means, A, they have to accept EU goods, and B, they can't accept goods from Great Britain without them undergoing full border mm. processing. 
and certification. Was that the sausage war? This um, is where the sausage war comes yes. from. <laughs> um, the UK has obviously um, unilaterally extended the grace periods to allow those kinds of goods to continue to enter Northern Ireland. But as the EU still stands at present, they want full rigorous implementation, which means that full trade border and all of the checks on British goods, which would have to meet the CE standard and be duly certified if, if, if required by uh, an independent body and, and all of those costs and frictions. And some goods just would not be allowed in mm. at all because the EU is very particular about things like chilled meats entering mm. the single market from abroad. Now, what the UK government proposed in the command paper last year, while Lord Frost was in charge of that work, was that Northern Ireland become, would become a dual regulatory zone, which would accept both EU regulated and UK regulated. So both the CE and the UK CA mark mm -hmm. would be accepted in Northern Ireland. Um, and you would just make sure that none of the UK CA goods would go over the border into, into the Republic yeah, of Ireland yeah. and, and therefore the single market. And for me, the obvious corollary of that would be, so should the rest of Great Britain be a dual regulatory zone? To me, it feels rather arbitrary to have Northern Ireland accepting both UK CA and mm. CE. And it actually would continue a trade border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland because you'd want to somehow, I don't know how you'd even do this, you'd want to somehow make sure the CE only goods weren't mm. coming over to Great Britain. So both as a solution or a partial solution or part of a solution for Northern Ireland and generally whatever happens actually in the negotiations with the EU about the protocol as a, uh, a solution that's respectful of the UK single market, yeah. we should be uh, accepting EU regulated CE certified goods into Great Britain. Mm. Mm. And that would, that would provide a basis for it would it would uh, mitigate the the GBNI problem. That's right. So even if we get no further forward in reforming the protocol, and Northern Ireland end ends up stuck in its current limbo, this um, this reform, this unilateral openness, would, as you say, be a mitigation. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Um, but thank you to our Head of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Victoria Hewson, for discussing her latest paper. You can, re you can read Changing the Rules, a unilateral approach to non-tariff barriers on the IA website, but there is also a link to the paper in the show notes below. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the IA podcast on Podbean, Spotify or Apple. We also upload our podcast on our YouTube channel, IA London. If you want to help contribute to the IA's digital output, please support us on Patreon, where you can benefit from exclusive membership perks whilst helping us continue to produce stimulating educational output. To become an online patron, click the link in the show notes.